Hemoptysis. It's a very captivating talk, no doubt. And um, I figured that since this is the last talk prior to the holidays, that we would include just a few pictures that I took with the dogs last night after I went around the neighborhoods to find out some of the tackiest um, Christmas decorations out there. So if your house is included, I will apologize in advance. If it's not included, then that's all right. And what my usual theme is here on February 2nd, which is Groundhog's Day, it's a day in which we celebrate every year, my family and I, we celebrate that particular day. As you all know, Poxitani Phil comes back out of his hole and then we decide whether or not we have six more weeks of winter. Well, I go back around and take pictures of the same houses to find out if the Christmas decorations are still up. And I, it's amazing what I've found is 90% of them are still there, you know? Okay, just to let you know. So again, if it's your house, uh, I'll apologize in advance. I'm gonna give you two cases to begin with, and you can spout out anything you want to for these cases. I'll give you the microphone to, if you want. You know, I'll be glad to, it's not a problem. But I, I wanna kinda give you at least two cases for you to think about when we're talking about hemoptysis. You know, there's, just to let you know, there's all sorts of ways in which you can measure hemoptysis from, you know, less than 20 cc's over a 24-hour time period, 20 cc's to 600 cc's over a 24-hour time period being frank hemoptysis, and then greater than 600 cc's being really bad hemoptysis. And quite frankly, I don't know of anybody who, like, calculates how many cc's they're actually coughing up as far as their blood. And so with that, I'm going to give you these two cases and I want you to think about that because we're going to go right back to those two cases towards the end of this talk. 24-year-old, and by the way, these are you know, both obviously real cases, things where either I've done fairly well on or didn't do very well at all on, but just to let you know, have a gentleman who's 24-year-old Caucasian male. He is coughing up frank blood. It started 24 hours prior, and it was associated with fevers and chills. Okay, moving along, his past medical history. This is a fairly, you know, a benign gentleman who doesn't have any major medical problems at all. His past medical history is negative. He kind of drinks occasional Boone's Farm at a brown paper sack. That's usually for Christmas holidays. His family history is negative, and his review system is positive only for shortness of breath, pain along his left side, and it's pleuritic, and uh, fevers and chills. So that is the case. Continuing on, Here's his examination, 38 degrees, respiratory rate's 28, blood pressure a little bit high, and his pulse is a little bit high, all right? Here's your examination. Now, you have splinting along the left side, you have left upper quadrant pain as well, no edema, this gentleman is tachycardic and he didn't have a murmur. Why don't you think about this case a little bit? This case is actually very, very interesting because, don't worry, it was raining last night, so I apologize to all the podcasting members out there who are watching these slides that uh, they're somewhat wet to begin with, because not because of spittle, um, but uh, because of the rain last night. I, I wasn't so excited that I was drooling over the camera. However, with that one particular case, I want you to think about that one. Th does he have a PE? Does this gentleman have a pneumonia? What is the most likely cause of this patient's coughing up blood? We'll get back to it, don't worry. All right, so now just to let you know, what we have here is we have little elves in a train, all right? We have a Christmas tree and candy canes, just to let you know. Now, now that's not necessarily tacky, relatively speaking. Is this anybody's house? Good, moving along. But moving along past the house, 
you now have the reindeer. Now the reindeer turn their heads this way and that way and this way and that way throughout the entire Christmas time. It's absolutely amazing, you know. Now you never see any of them taking a dump, you know what I'm saying? They're always just moving their hands back and forth. Okay, still concentrating on case one. Now this is, there's kind of an aura on this one. This is kind of the usual house in my neighborhood. You have the deer turning back and forth. You have just a few lights and such. All right, again, thinking about case one, remembering your differential diagnosis there. 24-year-old male coughing up blood. Not really sure why he's coughing up blood. All right, well, let's go through our differential diagnosis. Well, what is your differential diagnosis? Anybody want to take a gander here? Yes, John. Okay, what's another differential diagnosis for this gentleman? Oh, go ahead, you can say it. Even if you're wrong, I won't laugh at you too hard. Okay, what's that? TB is certainly a possibility. Very good, very good. Following Dr. Nilsis, a fine lecture, absolutely. TB is a possibility. What else? PE certainly is a possibility, okay? What's gonna kill this gentleman fairly quickly? And what's the possibilities there? Certainly if he has severe hemoptysis from TB, and you may or may not realize that TB and bronchiectasis and that cavitary lesions are more likely to cause severe hemoptysis, where these people really, really crash very quickly. But I thought of one diagnosis that could kill him, and I stuck to that diagnosis, by golly, and the life-threatening etiologies and my initial management of such a patient. At the time, we didn't have D-dimers. The question that I ask you, though, if someone is coughing up blood, can they go home? Should they you know, stay in the hospital? How far should I go with this in a young, healthy male? And again, what is my differential diagnosis of things that are going to kill him and of things that are not going to kill him? And that's what I thought. So I had my differential diagnosis already set. He was coughing up blood. He had left pleuritic chest pain. He was essentially almost an extremist at that point, had a high fever, and I went ahead and concentrated on my differential diagnosis being pulmonary embolism. And then I, my second one being the academician I was at the time was pulmonary embolism. And then once again, I, I, I kept it simple. You know, let's, let's just keep it simple. Let's think of this and pulmonary embolism. I was right there, man. I was thinking pulmonary embolism all along. I was, I was in the tube, as it were, all right? Now, this is a picture, of course, is what we sometimes tend to do in emergency medicine. And that's where I want to go with this, is what we tend to do sometimes is anchor on a diagnosis. Drop anchor, and we're there, you know? And we're just pulled right downstream or right underwater sometimes when we actually concentrate on a diagnosis especially if that diagnosis is dangerous. You know, if we forget that, you know, we think, well, this is probably a little pneumonia, then all of a sudden it ends up being a PE. If we forget the dangerous diagnoses there of people with chest pain, you could certainly miss something that's quite important. So moving along with that, I'm gonna give you case number two. And again, we'll go back to these folks, 45-year-old African-American female, and she presents to the ED the same day after discharge. And this happened a lot where we came from because the whole idea with internal medicine at the time, they had like a little chute, you know? So you, you press the red pedal, they bumped up to, you know, like the fourth floor, and then they went ahead and got antibiotics, you know, they, they moved down towards the chute, and then another pedal was pushed, and then they slammed down the chute as quickly as possible away from our emergency room. That's the way we did it. it they, sometimes they were in the hospital literally for less than 12 hours, okay? And this particular lady was, in the hospital for less than 12 hours with a diagnosis of pneumonia. 
and she was given the usual clinical, uh, she was fairly stable. Um, she wasn't having any major medical problems at the time. She really was a, a lady who had not had any major difficulties in the past. She was not on any chronic medications. She just came in short of breath. She was diagnosed with a community-acquired pneumonia, and then she was admitted. She went down the chute, you know, because it was 12 hours. It was time to get rid of her, and they did. She bounced right back to the emergency room with a diagnosis of pneumonia. Slightly worsened since admission, but she didn't fill her antibiotics. How much is a Z-Pack? I don't know, but it was too much for her. So she didn't fill it, and there we went. You know, we, we said, you got to fill your antibiotics. We got to move on here. This, you know, if you're going to treat pneumonia, you got to do it right. And of course, we castigated her for that and told her that she has to complete, she has to complete her antibiotics in order to get better. Okay? So once again, yet a picture of an anchor. I want you to think about this. Here's her physical examination. Oh my gosh, we're still anchoring here. And so my real objectives here are to define hemoptysis and pseudohemoptysis. I finally figured out what pseudohemoptysis was. It took me a while to look it up through the textbooks and try to figure it out, but that's what we're going to try to define today. And what is frank hemoptysis and what kind of hemoptysis does a person need to get into the hospital? Or what kind of hemoptysis can a person have and leave the hospital? Is that even a possibility? All right. <clears throat> Certainly the patient's history is, is significant. And the significance of that history is actually how much have they been coughing up? You know, quite frankly, you don't get anybody who comes in with a cup that says, okay, I have 600 cc's of frank blood. Here it is. Uh, you know, this is, this is my hemoptysis for the 24-hour period. So the, the real question is, if you can get an appropriate history from these folks, you can try to figure out whether or not they're going to be admitted almost right at, at the minute you see them. Usually these people with hemoptysis come in, and they're already coughing up blood, and they have frank hemoptysis at the time. However, what is the usual scenario that you see where someone's been coughing up blood? Come on. Everybody's seen this. Right. Right. You know, all of a sudden, and at 3 in the morning, you know, they go, <coughs> and then, you know, they're holding it in their hands. They put it in a paper sack, you know, and try to bring it in to show you that they're going to die soon. I usually try to, you know, enforce that as best as possible and move along. So physical examination in the ED and deciding the disposition for the patient is pretty important. And again, I really emphasize that. Remember patient number one, remember patient number two. We're going to get back to them here. Okay. All right. Here we go. Now, this is, this is where we're getting a little bit to the left of center. All right. This is, this is where the Christmas decorations are going a little too far. Right? We have here a basketball goal. Inside it is a basketball, which is also decorated in lights as well, okay? These people really need to get out more, okay? This is a car that is not decorated, but possibly some individual's cars. I saw two of them. They had white eyes. They were getting ready to leave, okay? <laughs> they were, they're going to back up very quickly or go over these things. Now, we have, we have not, we're not finished with these decorations yet, okay? We're not even close to this, you know, this house moves on. It's a panoramic view of Christmas <laughs> as if someone had vomited Christmas on their backyard, you know? Okay, so now we have a whole bunch of glittering lights over here. We have candy canes, lots of candy canes. Got to have candy canes for Christmas, all right? Now, we're getting ready to see those deer again, the ones that turn their head back and forth, you know, that sort of thing. 
All right, so now that's the scenario there. Uh, now we got the front view, uh, the full Monty, if you will. All right, now we have the baby Jesus. Uh, we have Mother Mary and Joseph in front of a candy cane. And <clears throat> we have now gone over to the Christmas tree that has been decorated. You cannot see the basketball goal, all right? That is now gone from your picture. However, you can now see that Walmart had a special <laughs> on the snowman. And what the snowman do is they act, this is no joke. I sat there and watched this for 20 minutes. The dogs loved it too. They were just watching this thing spit out snow from the, its top hat, you know? So it actually has moving parts that spits out snow, okay? These, these, what's that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's fine, Chris. You'll get over that one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, now, we've, we've gone now a little bit further in the panorama, in the tour of the world here. We have left the Mother Mary. We have gotten to Santa Claus. We've moved over to the Vomiting Snowman, and now we have Santa's workshop, okay? Notice that Santa and his workshop are moving away from the house, okay? Very, very important. What's that? That's a good point, Matt. You're going to stay up late at night wondering about that, aren't you? Okay. Now I'm leaving, but notice that this is, this is my rearview mirror. So I am backing up. I am so shocked, all right, that, that this has actually occurred in my life. Now we have the basketball goal, the vomiting snowmen, the, the, the Mother Mary and Joseph have been well hidden. We have something here of which I do not know. I really don't know what happened here, but I think that a helicopter or something landed there and that's getting ready to pick up a patient or two. All righty. So what happened to this house? I have a whole lot of theories about what happened to this house. And I sat up late at night with the dogs trying to figure out what really happened to this house. And here are some of my theories. It became a landing pad for Medforce. I think that's a possibility. I really do. All right. I think the owner already, we know this without a doubt, hitting the sauce again. Definitely a Walmart clearance sale. No doubt about that one either. We had also a Target. We had kind of a combination. We went from Walmart to Target and we found classlessness, you know? Exactly, they did not care, you know? Neighborhood prank, I don't think so. But this is really what happened. You can take a moment to read this, but I, th I think this says it all. This is the true meaning of Christmas right here. Okay, so I think that Jesus was not born in Bethlehem, but in front of the Frosty the Snowman. So that's at least what, according to uh, what this uh, house showed. Regardless, the feeling of Christmas continued as I backed away from the house, and this other house had a for sale sign in front of it. So I knew we were in trouble there. Okay, let's define hemoptysis. It's coughing up blood, simple. From the bronchial tubes, as far as we know, from the lungs, as far as we know, but from the, the, the bronchial areas is where we find most of the hemoptysis that occurs. So we find the bronchial arterioles, if there is true hemoptysis, that's where the coughing and hemoptysis is coming from, from that area. It can be from mild to massive. And the morbidity, morbidity and mortality really does depend, and the management depends as well, depending on what you find on the physical exam alone. So according to all the books, this is what hemoptysis is, but we already know what it really is. It's just coughing up blood. The big problem is we have to dif differentiate coughing up blood from throwing up blood. And that sometimes is not always that easy. So ranging from mild to massive, and then the true versus pseudo, 
Now, one thing that I wasn't sure of, that pseudohemoptysis really does not mean coming from the GI tract. That pseudohemoptysis has a whole different idea and theory to it. That what's coming up looks like blood, but is not. And where might that occur? You know, in what situation might that occur? Pseudohemoptysis. Well, that's going to still possibly be for all the hemoptysis, believe it or not. But actually, someone who has a pneumonia who coughs up a little rust-colored sputum, someone might consider that to be hemoptysis. So I would consider that to be pseudohemoptysis, not necessarily true blood. But GI bleeding, you know, is not really pseudo. That's, you know, that's just frank GI bleeding. That's what we should call it. So we have to differentiate the, the three of those. Okay, so the epidemiology, males to females, actually 60% to 40% interestingly enough. Now, over the years, the changes have gone on, and, and I think Eric has alluded to those. You know, after the 1960s, you know, we started seeing less of tuberculosis. Now we can describe that probably within the population, the reason for hemoptysis due to tuberculosis is about 8% now. It was much higher before the 1960s, just the year before Eric was born. The percentage of undetermined causes are very interesting to me, that up to 25% of the time, still to this day, we don't know whether or not or why they had hemoptysis to begin with. And they leave with a diagnosis of hemoptysis after having a full workup, and they still don't have a diagnosis. However, later on, I think that there's a concern for CA, and the possibility of CA finally presenting itself certainly is there. But 25%, which I think is very high. So tuberculosis, again, the percentage is 8%. But the most of the time, John alluded to this prior to him going to sleep, that the percentage of what? What did I say? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah, here, here's a piece of candy for you, John. Everything's going to be okay. All right. But the infectious non-TB percentage can be anywhere from 50 to 60% of the time. So that's what we see, and John alluded to that, that I anchored on a diagnosis of pulmonary embolism because I thought that this guy really had a pulmonary embolism. I was fixated on that. I had anchored, I had dropped the anchor on it. However, the percentage of hemoptysis, the highest amount of times that you will see hemoptysis is a person who has an infectious process, bronchitis. And again, like Chris had also said, that you see the person who's been coughing for three weeks, all of a sudden has a little string of blood and one of their relatives sees it, you know, everybody kind of gathers around it, you know, and looks at it, you know, they call PD for APGARs, you know, and then finally they end up, you know, com coming to the emergency room because they're afraid that they're going to die suddenly. Okay, and children, once again, bronchitis, pneumonia, and the foreign body also is included on this one causing hemoptysis. So we have a real difficult time of deciding whether or not the blood is coming from the GI tract sometimes versus the pulmonary tract. And then now we have to decide what's really causing that, and we have to decide whether or not we can send these people home. So we really have a lot of decision trees to make here. We have to kind of go carefully, though, because quite frankly, if you send someone home with hemoptysis, you got to be ready. I mean, they very well could open up and die very, very quickly. So it's something that we have to be careful of. So again, overall causes, infectious is most likely to occur. Neoplasm, it's kind of the rule almost of 25% uh, if you look at it. About 50 to 60% is infectious without TB. Uh, neoplasm, about 25% of the time. Tuberculosis, I mentioned 8% of the time. Most likely in the, in the United States, I suspect, strongly. And then finally, cryptogenic, meaning we don't know what the heck it's due to. That ends up being 25% uh, of the time. 
And then miscellaneous, actually, not all that much, but CHF being one of the possibilities. Foreign bodies and kids, another possibility. Okay. And again, is it really hemoptysis? Ken Philbeck and I intubated a lady just as scary as the one you all presented this morning. She had no neck. She was, you know, had a nosebleed, we thought. She was just gushing out blood from everywhere, and we were trying to get a hold of her airway. And that was absolutely a nightmare, as can be this particular scenario where someone is, is actually, you know, having hemoptysis and great amounts of it due to bronchiectasis or cavitary lesions, tuberculosis, you know, cavitary lesions due to tuberculosis or due to infection or abscesses. Those are all reasons to be throwing up blood, but usually a lot of blood. And so these people can go down very quickly. Okay, the esophageal varices and GI bleeding. So pseudohemoptysis, red tinge sputum not due to blood, give me one example. And I was sitting there scratching my head after looking at all those decorations last night going, what do they really mean by pseudohemoptysis? And Finally, I figured it out that most likely what they're talking about is an infectious cause, but rust-covered sputum. It looks maybe like a little bit of blood and someone mistakes it for blood. So a few historical factors. Smoking, I think, is important. Exposures to toxins and, of course, recent infections and travel. Now, just to let Dr. Nillis know, travel is not always benign, okay? I read, read up on travel. Travel's bad, all right? You know, even traveling out to Riverside, right by Bobby Peter's house, which is where these decorations were, is dangerous. <laughs> it is dangerous. You know what Bobby calls these people? The Griswolds, okay? All right, just to let you know that you can get all sorts of things that cause hemoptysis out there in the, in the bad old world. You stay in the United States where you belong, son, you'll be okay, all right? <laughs> You know, but I'm telling you, travel can actually, you can swallow leeches in your lungs. And that's, that's one of the things that they discussed, that if you're swimming around in one of those murky waters down there in Africa and you start coughing up blood, remember your differential is going to increase highly there. And also, I'm going to have a 40-foot pole poking you to examine you because I'm not going to get close to you. You have leeches in your lungs, you have a whole different problem than what I want to deal with, quite frankly. All righty. So our usual scenario, again, we talked about the patient with bronchitis. I saw blood in my sputum yesterday, and they came in at 3 o'clock a.m. realizing that death was imminent, and uh, they thought they'd get seen earlier anyway, okay? So the mild hemoptysis, less than 20 cc's, well, how do you really describe that? It's difficult. So what we really use is whether or not the patient has a little bit of stringy blood in their sputum or whether they really are coughing up true blood. And I think you can usually differentiate that because by the time they get to the emergency room, they're already going to be coughing up something. You're going to see what they're coughing up. And believe me, if it's greater than 20 cc's, quite frankly, you're going to go ahead and admit them. And that's what you should do. So they could open up very quickly due to all those things I just told you about, from bronchiectasis to cavitary lesions. And you don't want to let those things open up. So admit or not to admit, and it's usually bronchitis. And again, do we really you know, want to quantify how many cc's? No, I don't think that we should. But I think what we should do is at least kind of make some decisions based on it. Did this patient really, really cough up blood and was it significant? If so, try to really get a good history and decide. So what they said in, in the literature and most of the textbooks, because you won't find much literature out there on this, but again, less than 20 cc's is mild hemoptysis. So you don't have to admit that. But anywhere from 20 to 600 cc's is frank hemoptysis, and greater than 600 cc's means you should run around throwing your hands up in the air and you know, get some sort of way to control the airway. So that means that uh, things are really getting ready to go down the tubes. They're getting ready to smoke the white owl, as we used to say.
Mm, few people got it. All righty. White Owl, those were cigars that my grandfather used to smoke. White Owl cigar, ET2, the white. Okay. All right. So moderate hemoptysis, how many pads per day? That's, you know, that, I mean, seriously, <laughs> you know, right? I mean, have you ever tried to quantify? And again, I, I really emphasize this. Have you ever tried to quantify menstrual bleeding and a lady just having, well, it's very, very difficult. So usually what I ask is, is it greater than or normal than a, a normal menstrual period for you or less than a normal menstrual period for you? And here, I think that you can try to quantify it that way instead of trying to have them measure it for you. Wouldn't make sense anyway. Uh, how many bobs? Uh, let's see. Uh, um, bottles of blood. That's what it was. You know, did they throw up? And are there better ways to quantify? So scant, frank, or really bad. And really, frank and bad is going to be admitted. So your diagnosis. You know, chest x-ray, if you decide to get it, malignancy in 80% of the patients with frank hemoptysis was found. That does not mean vice versa. So if they had frank hemoptysis, they had possibilities for CA. 80% of the time, they had a malignancy. So they had to have some risk factors involved on that. So something else, the life-threatening hemoptysis, you should go ahead and get bronchoscopy ASAP. Now, think of this and think of this very, very hard, all right? You are in Mule Shoe, Texas, and you have someone coming in with severe, severe hemoptysis. Think about that because we're going to get to that. And believe me, it is a definite possibility. So the causes, I've already alluded to those, bronchiectasis. What is bronchiectasis? Anybody want to take a gander at that? I have some candy then, you know, candy. Uh, make it up. You're okay. What's that? Okay, I'll give it to you. What the heck? You know, I mean, there's two pieces of candy. You're okay. Congratulations, you know. I, you know. Um, actually, yes, in, in a way, what happens is there's dilatation of the bronchial tree, and it's related a lot of times to COPD. So what happens, you know, as Matt is, is trying to say as well, is what happens is the, the trachea and the bronchial tubes get floppy. They, they just don't work very well at all, and it's because of the scarring that occurs. All right. Now, this is bad, all right? Once again, you know, if you have this, you have a problem, all right? So they can go into massive hemoptysis, and obviously these people are in trouble. The cavitary lung cancer, tuberculosis, and believe me, tuberculosis can cause someone to bleed like stink. So you have to be careful with that as well. And the pulmonary abscess. So what is our treatment? Airway compromise, the bad lung down. Now, this is really true. If the person is bleeding from one lung, and you can figure out which lung that is, you're supposed to put them with the bad lung down, supposedly, so you can increase the oxygenation from the good lung being up. However, two textbooks actually wrote, that doesn't work at all. You're actually supposed to put them, no joke, in the prone position. So I like that idea better. With the mouth down, I guess, hanging over the stretcher so they can homopticize in the trash can. Won't mess up the room. And uh, you can, of course, really check their airway out very closely that way with a special laryngoscope of some sort. So uh, there's all these ideas as to what you should do and how you should, you should manage someone who's having hemoptysis from a specific area. And that's where we're going to go to Muleshoe, Texas, and talk about this. So the frank and severe again. They need admission. So the airway first, now what? Okay. They suggest that you go ahead and put in a large ET tube. You're going to have to suction these people out. You're going to have to get rid of clots. You know, because, again, this is frank or severe hemoptysis. You've got to somehow be able to suction out clots while you're waiting for your pulmonologist to get in to take a look at the lung or for your cardiothoracic surgeon to come in and take a look at the patient as well. Off the back nine, it's time to bring them in. All right, they're going to need blood products as needed in immediate pulmonology consultation and bronchoscopy. But the airway treatment is what you're going to have to deal with. 
So you're in Muleshoe, Iowa now instead of Texas, all right? I'm changing to small town Iowa. You know, Brandon, Iowa, anybody know where Brandon, Iowa is? And what it's famous for? The largest, okay, yeah, all right, give him a, yeah, go ahead and give him something back there. I don't know what, but go ahead and give them, tell them to smoke that thing. <coughs> yes, indeed, the largest frying pan in the world, Brandon, Iowa. What's that? So anyway, <laughs> so you're on Muleshoe, Iowa, and you have, you have to make some decisions now, all right? You have a patient who is bleeding like stink from one lung. What can you possibly do? What are the possibilities here? Selectively intubating mean what? Oh, you sure do. You hope that the bleeding's on the left side. Why, Rhonda? You're right on top of it. You're exactly right. How come? It sure is. Going to it is very, very difficult to do so. You'd like to, and you'd like to say that you could, and sometimes you may be able to. Believe me, it is very, very tough. You know, bad lung. I was just going to mention that. Sure. Have that bougie hook to the left, and then, of course, the ET tube will go to the right if you think about it hard enough. But, no, I agree totally. Seriously. What's that? The bougie? or the Sure, absolutely. And, and you know, and actually, seriously, that's kind of what Rhonda is alluding to as well. And, and what I would say is what the books say as well is that it's sort of a finger in the dike if you put the tube in the good lung to begin with because hopefully you're kind of compressing the badness, you know, from that bad lung and from having aspiration. Now, this is all semi-theoretical, but you might get in trouble this way. You might see this in a rural area. So it's one of those things where the rapid response team and time to call the helicopter is one of those things that you want to do quite quickly because you're not going to have a lot of the resources to deal with this. And again, with severe hemoptysis, these people can die very, very quickly. So we talked about, and very good, Rhonda, we talked about the uh, ET tube and selective intubation. Uh, you know, I, again, getting it down the right main stem is fairly easy, and certainly left side intubation is very quick, uh, very difficult, I'm sorry. So, again, we have the stable patient, scant hemoptysis. This came straight from the American Academy Family Practice, and, and I think pretty much everybody agrees with this. Chest X-ray, no abnormalities. PE ruled out, because I'm still more inclined to rule out a PE. You can probably discharge these patients with a little bit of scant blood in their sputum. All right, again, you have frank hemoptysis, admit, yes, you know, you should rule out the PE, but if you have frank hemoptysis, you should admit. Now, let's go back to patient number one, 24-year-old male who has frank hemoptysis, possibly pneumonia, as John said, does not meet the fine criteria for admission for pneumonia. What do you do with those people? You admit them anyway. So you can look at all the fine criteria and try to define whether or not a person should be admitted. In fact, at the hospital where I saw this patient, a pulmonologist had listed out the fine criteria and said, this is the only reason you should call me or call anybody to have a person admitted you know, for pneumonia. And it's like, no, that's just, that's just not the way life goes. It's just, there's no templates for the way in which we deal with patients because the patients didn't read the book. And, and of course, with the particular patient in case number one, I had obviously not read the book either. So if the chest x-ray is positive, then the CT scan, if it's negative, you're going to still admit regardless because you're going to get bronchoscopy. You're going to get it involved. Oh, here, you want me to? Oh, I thought that. I thought it was how... Well, 
you know, Waterloo's a, a pretty good place. It could stay there if they wanted to, you know. All right, you, you rule out PE with severe hemoptysis and selective intubation if possible. Now, remember that patient, okay? You had frank hemoptysis, a 24-year-old male, and we've already gone through all the potential differentials here. The most likely etiology was exactly what John said. So you have a low bar pneumonia, and that's exactly what this gentleman had. It's a low bar pneumonia. Of course, the only thing I did wrong was say that it was right, uh, yeah, I did say it was left-sided, but it actually right-sided. I just wanted to show you a picture. Yes, these people can throw up blood, and they can throw up more, or excuse me, cough up more than 20 cc's of blood over a 24-hour period. So, most likely etiology for that patient in number one was not really a PE, but it's a patient who definitely has something that's going to get them admitted, but it was a pneumonia. All right, patient number two, what did she have? This is her x-ray. Well, she had a PE, <laughs> okay? So she had an, essentially a normal chest x-ray. And so, no kidding, she had the ability to come back to the emergency room four times over until she finally developed Hampton's hump. And then someone said, hey, that's Hampton's hump. I haven't seen that in 25 years of practice. And then, by golly, it was. And what that is is infarcted lung that sort of has a crescent shape that's pointing towards the hilum. And that's exactly what this particular lady finally developed. And finally it dawned on us, again, this is from the land of no D-dimer at the time, finally dawned on us that probably she did have a PE. She came in with a diagnosis, and that's kind of the point of this lecture other than hemoptysis. She came in with a diagnosis, which is why a lot of the times, if I'm, for instance, seeing a, a kid who has um, vomiting and diarrhea. When he leaves, what his diagnosis for me is vomiting and diarrhea. Because if he comes back, I don't want to really squash the diagnosis here for that patient. Maybe there's something going on. Maybe this kid has appendicitis in a, a, a different way of presenting. Maybe this kid has something else going on. But one of the things that I've learned over the years that the diagnosis of viral gastroenteritis can get you in trouble all the time. And because they end up coming back with something totally different, but they came back with a diagnosis. This lady was admitted for her diagnosis of pneumonia. She was treated for it, and then we got to see her four more times in the emergency room before she finally developed an infarct of her lung, and finally the diagnosis of PE was made. Okay. It's just, it's amazing. Sure. I mean, I certainly want to be careful with those now. And with, with that gentleman, I got a CT scan, of course. And the, the radiologist called me and said, that is a pneumonia. And then I said, I don't believe it. I still called the pulmonologist. He goes, that is a pneumonia. You know, so it took a long time for me to figure that out, that that gentleman probably just had a pneumonia. And you can bleed from pneumonias. That occurs. However, I did get the CT scan on him, even though he was young and had no risk factors. That lady had no risk factors either, as far as we could tell, other than one of those proteins that she was messing or whatever. But, you know, quite frankly, you know, CNS and all that stuff, but quite frankly, you know, we, we totally missed that diagnosis, and she kept coming back to try to tell us what it was. She was anxious. She would come back with anxiety. She had a good reason to be anxious at that particular emergency room. We kept sending her home. So she's getting more and more anxious with time, and it was very, very appropriate, I think, at that point. So 
Kind of a sideline to this little talk here is that hemoptysis certainly is something that we need to deal with, we need to be careful with, we need to, to look at very closely, we need to make very, very careful decisions to whether or not we should admit these patients, but we also have to be careful, and the sideline to this is that of really anchoring on the diagnosis. I anchored on the diagnosis of PE on the first patient, I saw the second patient didn't even think of the diagnosis of PE on her. So you can see how if you drop anchor and keep dragging yourself, you'll drag yourself down. Now, we had a Swedish student rotating through. I can't remember her name. Pauline. She was rotating through with us, and we actually had a little medical school student discussion at the time. And I said, oh, you're from Stockholm. And don't worry, this is going somewhere. I'm not sure where, but we're, we're getting near the end of this anyway. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to get there. I'm not just babbling as far as I know yet. But I said, oh, in Stockholm, that's where the Vasa, the ship, the Vasa, was created in Stockholm back in the 1600s. And she said, you're exactly right. I can't believe you know that. That's one of a few facts that I can remember, you know. That's it. That was the only thing I could remember. And she said, yes, that is absolutely right. It's an embarrassment to Sweden. And we really don't like to talk about it, but thank you for bringing that up. And then she left the room. I don't know what that meant. Okay. But this is actually the Vasa, the, the ship that was made back in the 1600s. Now, this is why administration should never get involved with the building of anything, all right? Don't tell anybody, I just said that. It's on iPod, great, it doesn't matter. Okay, so what happened? They started building the ship because they wanted to overtake Poland. Everybody wants to overtake Poland eventually, somewhere in their lives, some country wants to overtake Poland. I don't know why, but they do. All right, so they decided to build the magnificent of all ships. They decided to put cannons, big old cannons on the Vasa. The king didn't like that, all right? He said, we need more cannons. We gotta have cannons here. We're taking over Poland. This is not just the like, itty bitty stuff. And so the, the people who were drawing up the ship said, you want more cannons? You know, where do you want them? I said, put them on top where we can get Poland. We just shoot them. You know, keep shooting cannons off. But you have cannons on the right, cannons on the left, and they just start firing them away. You know, and that way keep your boat balanced. That's what he was thinking, which he really wasn't thinking all that much, right? So the king kept adding cannons to this thing. Do you know where I'm going with this? It's really true. All right, so this is the Vasa in model. And I actually visited Stockholm and uh, went past this model. It was less wet than the original one, if that gives you any idea what occurred on its um, voyage, on its initial voyage in the harbor along Stockholm, because of all the cannons, it turned over towards starboard and went down along with 300 people. So the, the king killed 300 people in a boat all at once. You know, so they said, goodbye, old man. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like a bad day for Stockholm, you know? It just wasn't, you know, it was certainly an embarrassment, no doubt. So there's one of the cannons that got him in trouble. But seriously, the king kept adding on to them. Okay. Well, that's the end of it. But again, that sideline is what I really want you to get, is that anchoring on a diagnosis can get you in trouble. But the other part of this, of course, is what is severe hemoptysis versus a hemoptysis that you can send home. And that's pretty self-evident from there. All right, I'll take any questions, and then we'll end it up here.